We're in all of Revelation 19 today, not just um, verses 11 and onwards, which is in your outline. That's a miscommunication on my part. Uh, so thanks for Tom for flexing uh, so easily to read the whole chapter for us. Um, we're going to punch through all of it today. Um, got another apology while I'm up here. Uh, apparently I said something nasty about cricket a couple of weeks ago. Um, people weren't too happy about that. Apparently I lost a couple of friends. Uh, so I thought I'd start today's sermon with a sporting illustration. It's probably the only thing I know about sports, so this is my whole arsenal and I'll be spent in the next couple of minutes, so please have mercy on me. Uh, it was 2014 uh, and it was one of the greatest sporting humiliations of all time. It's the FIFA World Cup, it was hosted by Brazil, arguably the best country in the world at the game of soccer or football if you want to be serious about the sport. Home turf advantage, semi-finals, they were on their way to glory. And they were playing Germany. It was going to be a close match. Germany produces some fantastic footballers. And let me tell you, it was incredible to watch. Even myself, who knows nothing about sport, thought it was incredible to watch. Brazil lost 7-1. And they got their goal in the last minute of the match. That kind of makes me think that maybe Germany was just giving them a pity goal to make them feel a little less humiliated. It was the most humiliating defeat that they had ever experienced. And do you want to know what the best thing about a match like that is? The replays. <laughs> clip after clip after clip of balls sailing into the net. First from this angle and then from that angle and then from that angle. You have close-ups of, of, of Brazilians crying in the crowds. <laughs> you have wide-angle views of, of the German plays as they advance inexorably towards victory. Now you saw devastated players, shell-shocked coaches, people yelling, swearing, screaming, and all of those different replays summed up to communicate one inescapable conclusion. Germany had won, and not just won, but absolutely wiped the floor with them. Today we're talking about victory, and not just any victory, we're talking about the victory of God, the victory of God over injustice and evil at the end of time, for all time. So we're in Revelation chapter 19, and we're talking victory. We're almost at the end of the book. Revelation has 22 chapters. And it's in these final chapters, really from verse, chapter 17 all the way through to chapter 22, that we see Jesus, because he's the one who's giving these revelations and these visions to John, who's writing the letter. We see him start to wrap up his account of history. And it's exactly like Germany versus Brazil. It's goal after goal after victorious goal with no respite. And in the case of Jesus, no pity goal at the end. Jesus wins. And he doesn't just win. He absolutely wipes the floor with them. And so if you want the one take home from the book of Revelation, maybe this is the first time you've come to the CU, maybe it'll be the last time you've come to the CU, then this is what you need to take home. It's not some weird, freaky predictions about World War III. It's not microchips. It's not the rapture. If you want the one thing that the book of Revelation teaches us, it's that through vivid Old Testament imagery, whatever happens, no matter how dire things seem to get, Jesus is victorious. He will conquer his enemies. He will rescue his people. And like we'll see at the end of the book, he will bring them to paradise in the new creation. That's Revelation. But as we read it, it's important to understand how that message is communicated. It took Jesus 22 chapters to say, essentially, guys, chill, I've got this. 
And so you've got to ask the question, why does he do it this way? He gives John a series of visions, and they're visions that describe the events between Jesus' first coming, back in 0 AD, when he died on the cross and rose again, all the way through to his second coming, which we still await in the future at an undisclosed time. And as Revelation describes those events through those visions, they're described in different ways and from different angles. And this is the key thing to understand. They're not chronologically sequential. They're actually more like replays, a series of action replays that focus on the same events, but with a different focus or a particular purpose at each point. Now, while it's true for all of Revelation, it's particularly true at the end of the book. So, chapter 17, all the way through to chapter 22, the focus is on that final moment of human history. And so part of reading Revelation well, particularly for us as we get to the back end of Revelation, is to work out which replay we're watching today. And the thing to get about chapter 19 is there's actually two here. Uh, The first half, verses 1 to 10, which isn't in your outline, is actually the end of the first replay, a replay that began in chapter 17. And then the second half of our chapter, verse 11 to 21, is actually another replay. And so before we launch in, I think we need to understand how these two relate to one another so that we can hold the whole chapter into our head. So let's ask the question, what replay are we watching? If you've got your Bibles, and hopefully you do because I was silly enough to not put the extra verses in, pull them out, head over to chapter 15. Have a look at chapter 15 and 16. Um, Not that the titles are part of our Bibles, but they'll tell you that there are seven bowls or seven plagues of God's wrath. They sort of look like this. Uh, I thought I'd take a leaf out of Ben Smart's um, playbook here, and I thought I'd draw you some pictures. So here we go. They're not as nice as his, but you just have to deal. Um, And these seven bowls described in chapters 15 to 16 describe God's judgment on humanity in the period between Jesus' first and second coming. And what we notice is that as we read through, particularly the back end of chapter 16, is that they increase in severity and intensity until those final ones, number six and seven, where we see God's judgment come to a climactic end. And what happens? Victory. Justice is dispensed. Victory is won. And so with the seven bowls, we actually have the final score, seven, zero. But it's important to notice what happens during the 6th and the 7th bowls. If you're following along in your Bibles, you can zoom in on chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, verse 13, we see a battle. And then in the 7th bowl, chapter 16, verse 19, we see God judge Babylon. And then from chapter 17 and onwards, what we start to see is a bunch of replays. So 17, chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 through to nineteen ten uh, is really these two events about the battle and Babylon zoomed in on. Now we get a brief kind of picture in chapter 17 verse 13 of the battle uh, where we see that the kings of the earth, they give their power and their authority uh, to the beast and they wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. But, but other than that one reference, 17.13, the whole of that replay is focused on God's judgment of Babylon, the great prostitute who killed God's people and corrupted the earth. And when we get to chapter 19, verse 1, uh, this is the beginning of our chapter for today, we actually see there uh, in, in, the, in the Bible there, verse 1, uh, that the, there's a great multitude of people and they call out and they sing hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. 
And so really for the first half of our chapter, this is the end of the replay. This is the aftermatch celebration where people are cheering on the fact that God has won. And then we get to verse 11, which is in your outline, and we see the next replay begin. And this one is about a battle. John looks, he sees heaven opened up around him, and he sees somebody on a horse called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, coming with his armies, and he sees the beast and the false prophet, which we've seen earlier in various other parts of Revelation, gathering their armies, but they're defeated. And so what we're seeing, like we saw in chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, and now here in chapter 19, is the battle for the third time, but this time in more depth than in more detail. It's another action replay. So what are we seeing here in today's chapter in chapter 19? Well, we're seeing the victory of the Lamb, but on two different levels. Chapter 17, uh, 1 all the way through to 19.10, think of it as a wide-angle replay of the whole uh, final minutes of the game. Uh, and then the rest of chapter 19 is the slow-motion close-up of the final goal. And so what that means for our passage, if you haven't worked it out already, uh, is that weirdly we have a celebration of God's victory in the battle before the battle actually happens. And so that's what makes things a bit kind of weird. It's kind of back to front. The only one you can blame for that is me who put the teaching program together and wasn't smart enough to see that the division should have gone a little bit later on in the piece. But because I'm a completionist at heart, I didn't want to start at verse 11. I didn't want you to miss out on those precious 10 verses. So what we're going to do is we're going to preach the chapter in reverse order. Now, generally speaking, that's a no-no. Uh, I want to tell you that I'm doing that because that's a little shifty. Can you have any thoughts as to why it might be a little shifty doing it that way? Well, it's because if Jesus is giving John these visions in a particular order, it stands to reason that he had a purpose for putting them in that order. And if I flip it around, then maybe I'm actually working against the Lord Jesus. So, tangent time. We'll come back to the chapter in a second. But let's have a think about why is it that Jesus would show uh, these particular replays in this particular order? And the answer is that he is showing John a series of escalating battles and victories. So chapter 17 to 19, we see the defeat of the prostitute, who we learned last week is Rome, an agent of the beast at a particular point in history. We then move on to chapter 19, verse 11. And what do we see? We see the defeat of the beast and the false prophet, who we saw last year as representative of all worldly authority and activity in rebellion against God from the point that Jesus first came all the way through to the point that he will come again. And then if you're peeking ahead in your Bibles, we get to chapter 20 and we see the defeat of the dragon, who we learn in chapter 12 is Satan, the one who empowers the beast, just as the beast empowered the prostitute, and is the one who is ultimately at work in the hearts of unbelievers to rebel against God. So what is Jesus doing as he shows these visions? He is working his way up the chain, from lackey to middleman to master from the mundane realm to the spiritual realm, and he is showing us that his victory at the end of history will be utterly thorough and utterly complete. He is cleaning house, and he is purging the world of everything that is unclean and evil at every level. Jesus wins. That's the tangent. Let's have a look at the replays. We're going to start in verse 11. Here's our second replay. And then once we've done that, we're going to zoom out. Uh, rewind, and then we'll go to the end of the other replay to kind of give us a biblical prompt as to how we should be responding to what we see. So let's begin. Let's begin in verse 11, and we're going to begin with the identity of the writer. <laughs> verse 11, let's have a read. And I saw heaven standing open. 
Now that phrase pops up a couple of times in Revelation. It signals a new vision. Uh, This is what John sees. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, no prizes for guessing who this is. This is clearly Jesus. In chapter 1 of Revelation, we saw him described as wearing white, his eyes like blazing fire. We see that here. In chapter 2, we see him describe himself as the faithful and true witness. And we see that same description here. Uh, In verse 13, he's called the word of God. And if you know anything about John chapter 1, well, that pretty well cinches the deal. The person that you see tearing out of heaven on a war horse is Jesus Christ. But it pays attention to pay attention to how he is portrayed as he presents himself in this vision. Because it's not what we would expect. I put Jesus into Google Images the other day. I don't know how often you guys do this. Um, It's probably not a helpful activity. Uh, This is what came up. And I think that this is pretty representative, don't you, of what we think of when we think of Jesus. Jesus is a white male model. He glows and he's filled with peace and goodwill. That's who Jesus is. Now, let's be clear, this picture isn't necessarily wrong. Throughout the Gospels, what do we see? Jesus is consistently represented as somebody who is gentle and humble in heart. He has compassion on the lonely, lowly and the oppressed. But the thing to get about this is that while we see these pictures and they have some element of truth, they don't show us the whole story. They don't present the whole picture. And if you don't have the whole picture of Jesus, then you will not understand Jesus. Yes, he is the loving saviour of the world, but he's also the conquering king of the world. So look again at the passage and see how he's betrayed here, because I think this is the scariest description of Jesus in the Bible. He bursts out of heaven mounted on a war horse. Armies come behind him. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth with which he strikes down nations. His robe is dipped in blood, Red wine and grape bits from the winepress of the wrath of God are splattered all over him because he has been crushing skulls with his feet. He's not surrounded by children. He's not holding a little lamb. He doesn't have perfectly conditioned hair. He is armed to the teeth, literally, and he's covered in the gore of battle. This picture of the rider is meant to terrify you. So that's the rider and his identity. What about his mission? Why is he bursting out of the heavens? What has he come to do? I alluded to this before briefly. Jesus is the conquering king. He has come here to conquer and take what is his. And you see that at the end of verse 11. It says that he comes to judge and wage war. Verse 15, he will strike down the nations with the sword of his mouth. He will rule them with an iron scepter for he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. So Jesus has come to conquer his enemies and to execute judgment upon them now look at how the battle plays out verse 19 we see the opposing army it's led by the beast 
Uh, the beast gathers the kings of the earth and their armies together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So we're seeing the replay here. We saw this in chapter 16, we saw this in chapter 17, and now here in chapter 19. But this fight, it isn't like Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, you've got the two massive armies and they kind of charge at each other and there's this clash of metal and everything goes flying. That's not what happens here. Jesus' victory is, is almost anticlimactic. It is so decisive that it doesn't really seem to even happen. It's a massacre. What does he do? He takes the beast and the false prophet, uh, prophet and he plucks them up as though there was just a weed in his garden, just wandering around on a Saturday morning. And, and he takes the beast and the false prophet, he captures them in verse 20, there we see, and they're thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which we see in the next chapter is a place where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's almost as if he just kind of teleported in and just got rid of the leadership. And then what happens in verse 21? The rest are killed with the sword that comes out of the rider's mouth. And so Jesus, he rocks up with all of these armies behind him and they don't even get to fight. Jesus himself and only himself wins the victory. And the point I think is clear. When Jesus returns and he establishes his kingship on earth, then everybody who remains in rebellion against him, those who have disregarded the word of his gospel, disregarded his invitation to repent and receive life, to bend the knee to his kingship and join his army, all of those people will be judged by the same word that offered grace but now comes out like a sword. And not a single one will escape because Jesus wins. Now, if you've been following along in the outline, you'll see that Jesus' victory is celebrated in chapter 19 by two feasts, a funeral feast and a wedding feast. Now, one of the images that the Old Testament uses on occasion to describe God's salvation at the end of time, where he takes his people and redeems them and gathers them back to himself, is a feast. So, for example, this is in Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, this is what it says. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And you see that in a bunch of other places, but that's one example. And here in chapter 19, what we see is that image from the Old Testament taken and then extended. But it's extended in two very, very different ways. So let's have a look at the first way. This is the funeral feast. It's in chapter 19, 17 to 18. Uh, you would have noticed in the Bible reading uh, that the funeral feast is particularly gruesome. Uh, let's wade into that again. Let's have a look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and of their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then the final verse of the chapter, verse 21, all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And so what we're seeing here is a twisted parody of God's end-time banquet. In fact, it's taken directly from Ezekiel 39, and we'll look a bit more at that next week. Uh, it's still a feast, it's still about the end times, but the ones who attend are not God's rescued people, they're his vanquished enemies. And instead of dining, they are dined upon. 
Now, I think it's a pretty fair guess here that even though we have been so desensitized to violence these days, uh, that most of us find this particular image sickening, particularly because it comes from our God, the God who we know to be just. And so it raises questions for us about whether this whole enterprise, this whole victory is just. And I want to say that that's hardly surprising for us in the West because I'll make a controversial statement here. I think most of us have never experienced evil. Uh, Richard Wormbrand, I don't know whether you've heard of him. Uh, he was a, a, a Christian who had been persecuted uh, in the 40s and 50s. He was a Romanian Christian uh, and he had been tortured for his faith. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, you might have heard of the organisation that he founded, The Voice of the Martyrs, which looks out for uh, persecuted Christians around the world. Uh, and in 1969, he came out to Australia to raise awareness about the persecution of Christians in his home country. Uh, now, during his imprisonment, he had been so badly tortured uh, that he couldn't stand or wear shoes. Uh, one witness said that he spoke while resting his mangled feet on a pillow. Um, I have, um, I don't know whether it's a great fortune, but I know somebody who was in the room when this guy spoke to them, and this is what he said. Uh, Richard got up. And he began his sermon by announcing that he would sing one of the psalms of the persecuted church. He then threw his head back and screamed. And it shocked everybody in the room. That, he said, was the sound of the persecuted saints in Romanian prisons as they cried out to God. When was the last time that you sang to God by screaming? And yet that is the experience lived and owned by a great number of Christians around the world today. And when they read Revelation 19, they are not sickened. They are comforted because of the atrocity of what they have suffered. You see, when your parents have been murdered, when your brothers have been kidnapped, when your sisters have been raped and you have been mutilated, a passage like this proves God's justice. It doesn't cause us to doubt it. And so I know that's heavy to hear, uh, but I think really we need to grow in our empathy as Western Christians of a vast, great crowd of brothers and sisters that we share the faith with who around the world suffer day in, day out because of their confession to the Lord Jesus. We need to wrestle with our Western sensibilities and how we react to this passage but if we extend our empathy and understand what's happening in the world to God's people at large, the logic of God's justice makes sense. And instead of becoming awkward, instead of becoming undesirable, it becomes good and right. And we want it to come. And we want it to come sooner than perhaps it will. So that's the first feast, the funeral feast. The second feast could not be more different it's no longer dark, it's happy, it's not black, it's white. Like the first feast, it takes the Old Testament imagery of the banquet and it extends it, but this time in a much more desirable direction because those who are attending are not God's enemies, but his people. And it's not just a feast, it's a wedding feast. The wine will flow for days, food will be there without limit. Uh, it will be a wonderful place to be. Now, the chapter doesn't begin there. We're looking at verses 1 to 10 now. It actually just begins with a generic celebration of God's victory over Babylon. So at the beginning of chapter 19, at the end of the first replay, if you remember, what do we see? I'll read it again because we had it earlier. We hear a great multitude cheering at the end of the match. 
And they say in verse 1, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Just in case we've still got questions about God's justice, that alone should be enough to assure us of the rightness. People in heaven are declaring what is right and true about what God has done. But they continue and they give us a reason as to why. Why are his ways, his judgments, true and just? Well, it's because he's condemned the great prostitute. Somebody who has two strikes on her record. She has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so what are we seeing here? We are seeing the source of all evil and all suffering. That which tortured God's people specifically, but that which corrupted the earth more generally, the source of all suffering and pain, all of that is done away with and removed. And so what happens? Well, verse 5, people, God's people are called to praise him. And as they praise him, something weird happens. The post-match celebration kind of gives way to a wedding feast. Have a look at verse 6. They're still singing, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so at the end of history, we see a second feast. Again, one prophesied in the Old Testament, but clarified in the New Testament. You see, when Jesus returns, he won't just return merely as a conquering king, but as a groom. And he will gather his people, his bride to himself, that they may dwell with him forever in a world that is freed from suffering and pain, freed from rebellion and disorder, in perfect peace, perfect joy, with full bellies and smiling eyes. And that new age in which he rules, in which he reigns, it begins with a wedding feast, with the marriage between God and his people to follow. So I want to finish today by asking you this question. Which feast do you plan to attend? Which one will you get ready for? Because Jesus is coming, and you know the score. He wins. And if this passage does anything, I think what it does is it pushes us to one of two extremes. It either makes you anticipate Jesus' victory more, because you know it's coming, or it makes you dread Jesus' victory more, because you know it's coming. You see, when Germany beat Brazil 7-1, the victory was so decisive that there was no room for mediocre feeling. Of all the people in that stadium that day, and there would have been thousands, I can guarantee you that there were two types of people that were not there. A mildly happy German or a mildly sad Brazilian. If you were German, you were ecstatic because the victory had been won. But if you were Brazilian, you were devastated because all hope was gone. You had been dashed to pieces. And so the challenge of this passage for us today is this. As you sit in the crowds, not in the social sciences lecture theatre, but in the crowds of Jesus' victory as it's played out on the field before you, and you watch replay after replay after replay on those big screens all around the place. I think they'll say you still have them, right? Yeah, that's cool. My knowledge of sport, that's two things I know. Fantastic. As you sit there and you watch those replays, will you get more ecstatic or will you get more devastated? Because if you're not a Christian, then the purpose of this passage is to fill you with more dread. 
Jesus wins. And if you're not for him, then you are against him. And you've seen the victory. You've seen the feast. The one thing that you cannot be is a mildly sad Brazilian. Uh, But here's where the analogy breaks down, and this is good news for us. The match hasn't ended. And so we can change sides. Take off one jersey, put on the other. In fact, that's what Jesus wants. He's got a whole basket of them just down on the edge of the field waiting for you to come and pick one up. Fine linen, white, clean, pure. He wants us to see how decisive his victory will be so that when he returns, we will be on his side and not on his enemies. I know a man called Vlad. He's from Belarus, just next to Russia. And he became a Christian in a persecuted kind of place. And he he became a Christian by reading the book of Revelation. And do you want to know the summary of his, his summary of Revelation? It was simply this. Repent or be barbecued. It's funny, but oh, when you stop and think about it, that's a scary summary, isn't it? And what had happened in the life of Vlad is that he had read the battle lines. He'd seen the troops arrayed on either side, and he'd seen the funeral feast at the end of the battle, and he changed sides. And now instead of looking to the funeral feast with dread, he now looks to the wedding feast with joy. And Jesus makes the same invitation to you. It's a wedding invitation. And all you need to do is repent of your sins and begin following the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And your dread will turn to ecstasy and your fear will turn to peace. And the hardships that you will embrace in following Jesus will be as nothing compared to what you get when Jesus returns and when he wins. Now, if you're a Christian... This passage tells you to get more ecstatic. The biblical term is joyful. You need to get more joyful, even if your present circumstances are suffering. In fact, especially if your present circumstances are suffering, because Jesus wins and the wedding supper of the Lamb is coming. And so if you're a Christian, do you bask in the coming victory of Christ? Do you set it as the point on your horizon that keeps you steady, even though the waves of life kind of toss you back and forth, the thing that holds you and keeps you steady? Or are you just a mildly happy German? Will your voice even now be caught up in the roar of the great multitude that we saw in chapter 19, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. And again, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You see, this is the thing that awaits us in the future. And it's therefore the thing that shapes everything that happens until that point. It's the thing that helps us endure perverse suffering. Wernbrand was in prison for a total of 14 and a half years, I think. Some of them were in an icebox left there talked to no one for three years they just made screaming noise at him outside just to kind of psychologically do him in and he came out of that space sane came out of that space willing to continue to praise god because he had relied on the victory that was coming in fact he was so empathetic to what was going on that he was even willing to pray for his persecutors because he understood the true nature of the king of kings and the lord of lords the one who came as the conquering king that until that point he would remain merciful and accept anybody who would come back to him. And it's that event in the future that keeps us steady now, particularly as our society continues to grow in its hostility towards Christianity. 
as it costs us friends, as it costs us reputation, as it costs us our emotional stability. We don't live for this age. We live for the age to come, the age that is marked at the beginning by a wedding feast that continues for a glorious marriage for all of eternity. And we know that because of this chapter. And so let me finish by saying this, brothers and sisters, we need to delight in the victory of Christ. Whatever your circumstance, you can sing hallelujah because Jesus wins. Amen.